UCB Life Issues with Paul Hammond. And as always, a very warm welcome to this week's Life Issues, where we are thinking about guilt and grappling with guilt. Do you ever feel guilty? I came across a quote which said, guilt is a destructive and ultimately pointless emotion. But is that true? I mean, couldn't guilt actually serve a purpose? After all, when Macbeth killed Duncan, wasn't it right that the guilt he felt weigh heavy upon him? I mean, it was Shakespeare's point, wasn't it? And wouldn't it be good if that worked in the real world and not just in fiction? But is there a difference between guilt and shame? Can we be free of the nagging burden of self-recrimination over issues long forgiven and even forgotten by others? Well, to quote the back of a book that's called The Guilt Book, have you been forgiven but you still feel guilty? Does something from your past nag away despite all your best efforts to shrug it off? Do mistakes loom large in your thinking? And do your conversations start with an apology? Many people are paralysed with guilt. Guilt robs you of your freedom, peace and joy. It can make you feel unacceptable or isolated. And although Jesus' forgiveness is the ultimate remedy for guilt, even for those who believe, guilty feelings can still present a lingering problem. So what's the answer? How do we address cycles of guilt with their associated feelings of hopelessness and despair? Joining me to talk about this today is Will Vanderhart, Anglican priest, director of the Mind and Health Foundation, co-author of well, more than a couple of books with Rob Waller, including the guilt book that is published by IVP. And Will, a very warm welcome to Life Issues. Thanks, Paul. It's great to be here with you. Thanks for having me on UCB again. Let's start by talking about the impact of guilt, can we? Because it is a great burden that comes with unresolved guilt, isn't it? I mean, Shakespeare's account of Lady Macbeth descending to the point where she takes her own life, that sense of burden's not just poetic license. No, it's not, absolutely. I mean, guilt is one of those desperately painful uh, emotions really drives into the heart of our value as people. I think... Um, we think about common emotions like anger. We, we don't necessarily personalise it in terms of describing ourselves as an angry person. We don't use it to dissect our personality or our value or, or happy. If we're happy, we don't use it to, to sort of dissect our, our personality or our value. But, but guilt speaks into the actual value of us. You know, what, what are we worth? What's our position in society, in relationship, in community? It, it kind of questions who we really are and what we're really all about. And I think that makes it a particularly painful emotion. But guilt is, is, is a small word with lots and lots of different connotations and associations. And, and it's not just one speed, as we'll find out hopefully through our conversation today, Paul. So we're using our word to describe quite a broad range mm. of feelings and ideas. So what is it about guilt then that makes it so invasive so intrusive that 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 enables it to be such a core defining thing within us well it, it's it's a it really differs person to person in terms of their relationship with with guilt and particularly you know their relationship with their own sense of self but 
for many people who are sensitive of conscience, a, a guilty conscience and a feeling of disease with the self, it becomes kind of a priority mission. How can I um, move forward with my life if I'm still shackled to this feeling of disease? And I think it, it becomes a very sort of arresting emotion. Um, and it's because it's often propagated by real events. Unlike most emotions which we move through as we experience life, guilt um, can be very persistent and resurgent. So when you encounter something that reminds you of a moment where you felt your behavior or your thought life or your outlook was um, inappropriate in some way or other, that same pang of guilt comes mm -hmm. back in. Whereas actually, there aren't many emotions which recycle in the way that guilt does. And I've, I've worked with people who've felt guilt about stuff in childhood who are now in their 60s and still remember not vividly just the event, but also re-experience powerfully that sort of anguished emotion. And I suppose it is the, the fact that often guilt is associated with activities that we can't go back and fix. I mean, that, that's I think what many people would like to be able to do. If they could turn back time, if they could turn the clock back, if I could go back and repair this, then I wouldn't feel guilty. It is the fact that all too often the guilt is unresolved. It kind of hangs in the air, doesn't it? Absolutely. And regret and remorse are things that keep propagating the cycle of guilt. You know, we we look back and often comparatively look back. And sometimes new information leads us to look back uh, and then feel a new guilt about old events. Um, you know, parents, I was teaching a parenting group earlier on this morning or helping them look at resilience issues. And I, I, I was talking to them about how parenting is so synonymous with guilt. Uh, you never feel like you've done it quite right. Yeah. Um, and when you're doing it, and your children are young, they don't tell you what you've done wrong, and then you, they become teenagers, and they tell you how you got it wrong, and, and, and you're so desperate to get it right. So even retrospectively, you can feel guilt about uh, old events. I think it's also a mistake to think that guilt is benchmarked you know, in, in a way that it's sort of universally qualified. The reality is that some people feel terrible guilt about things that other people feel absolutely nothing about, and other people feel no guilt about things that other people would feel absolutely terrible about. You know, the personal conscience and the personal frame of reference and understanding informs that guilt narrative. But like you say, this, this sort of agony of thinking, if only I could have not done that, um, leads us again to sort of re-step this old path of not really accepting or being able to move past these painful feelings. And the way in which guilt is provoked within us, is there an element of that that is cultural as well as psychological? Certainly. I mean, we talk about sort of the sociology of, of, of guilt particularly, um, because humans are settlers and we are community people and our our estimation of our um, behaviour is part of an inclusive or included community is a core part of our survival. So when we behave in a way which is accordant with our social group, we acknowledge our participation and our belonging within that group. But if we behave in a way which is discordant to the values of the group, we feel guilt, not just because 
we feel badly in conscience, but also because we feel the terror of exclusion from that group. Mm. Um, part of us, our psyche we call the sociometer, is a sort of thermometer of our social appropriateness. And when we do something which is socially inappropriate, as in uh, stands aside from the values of the group at large, we feel badly because in part we're terrified that we're going to get excluded and we'll be, we'll be judged and thrown out, which of course historically would have been a death. It's not just about being socially excluded. It would have been about heat, light, protection, fire, food, everything. I mean, if you're cast out of community 2,000 years ago, you're in, you're in real trouble. Yeah, indeed. And so my mum's favourite phrase of what will the neighbours say, I mean, that was actually a, a valid fear that many of us have. And I suppose if you take it to somewhere like a church community where you know, often the the way in which we talk around guilt and we talk around sin and so you can understand why people would fear that if I fess up, if I acknowledge my guilt, that I'll be excluded. You can see why that's a very powerful driver for people. Yeah, and there's often a critique of, oh, well, so-and-so only felt guilty because they got found out, uh, as if that is a, a surprising phenomenon. Well, of course, most people feel guilty when they get found out. Because the reality is that guilt, that sort of terror of exclusion, only really comes home to roost when someone has their their kind of their bad behaviour exposed. And um, so there's there's definitely a, a sociological guilt. There's a community oriented guilt. But there's also a guilt of personal conscience, which is why you know the early psycho psychoanalysts' perspectives, if you like, the guilt is a you know an unnecessary. <laughs> ill of human nature is, I think, really unhelpful because guilt has a really valuable and significant part to play in our lives, a very strong corrective and community function. And it's certainly something that's very useful for life and living and also for our spiritual selves. But it is something that we need to really understand in order to glean the best of it. But there is a sense, isn't there, where the, the guilt is internalised. And, you know, we've all had situations where we woke up in the middle of the night and thought for a greater or lesser reason, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. I felt guilty about something we've said or something we've done or be, behaviour or, or, or attitude that has felt unacceptable. But mm. when it is purely internalised, there is a sense in which it gets laid aside a little quicker, a little easier, isn't there? We might have the odd sleepless night, but when the sun rises in the morning, that the opportunity to move into a new day does kind of give respite. Well, I mean, I'm not sure that's true, in part because part of the outworking of guilt, part of the freedom we find from guilt is actually confession, is actually sharing what we feel guilty about. And whilst people might if you like, be able to put aside their guilt to a level uh, whilst it's done, what's done in secret is kept in secret. If it's kept in secret, there's also not not a healing. Um, there's no liberation. And very often what happens with guilt is whilst it's kept within the self, it, it actually grows. It doesn't diminish. And And so events and acts which are often outside of the control of the individual take on a whole new meaning to the point at which they become life-controlling issues. I love, I love um, The Lion King. I'm not sure maybe some listeners have seen the film. Uh, the Disney film has become something of a, a kind of classic. But in the film, 
um, Simba, who's the sort of the the, the lion cub, uh, believes that he has led to the death of his own father, mm-hmm. um, Mufasa, who who has been stampeded over by a herd of buffalo. Now, in real, in actual terms, what happened was that the wicked uncle Scar has orchestrated this whole circumstance. Now, what happens is that Simba, this lion cub, places himself into exile, separates himself from his own pride, and ends up living with a pig and a meerkat in the middle of the jungle somewhere um, for a life for a lifetime because they believe that they're guilty for their father's death. Uh, and actually, what happens so often in life is the failure to share the truth leads to the exacerbation of guilt to the point at which we exile ourselves against our own communities. Of course, it's Disney. So in, in Disney, he ends up coming back. <laughs> of course. And then, and then there's a great confession with Scar who sort of acknowledges that actually he wasn't responsible, you know, Simba wasn't responsible for his father's death after all. So it's all happily ever after. But most people I meet go through life believing their guilt is telling them the truth, but live with this sense of otherness, this sense of shame, this sense of exile as a sort of permanent feature of themselves, um, just, just, just hoping to put it out of mind. And alongside that comes the danger of using alcohol to try and mask those guilty feelings over busyness, overworking, you know, all sorts of different things that people undertake to try and diminish the power of guilt in their lives. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that avoiding and just rolling over and hoping it's going to go away is really the best remedy in all circumstances. That's possibly not the circle of life that we want to <laughs> pursue. You're listening to UCB Life Issues. I'm Paul Hammond, speaking this week to Will Vanderhart. We're talking about grappling with guilt and basing our conversation around a book that Will co-wrote. It's called The Guilt Book. It's available right now, by published by IVP, available online and in good bookshops and well worth hunting out, particularly if you want to understand the impact that guilt can have on the life that we live and indeed how we can resolve guilt and move forward. And if I could just take you back for a moment, please, Will, because you you mentioned the, the complexity and the diversity of guilt. Is it possible to come up with a definition that helps us to identify what is guilt that needs to be addressed and what is a pang of conscience that needs to be heeded in the moment? That's a really, really good question. I mean, if I was going to sort of define guilt as any act which leads to remorse against our own line of value, so any act or thought or behaviour which we undertake uh, contrary to our core conscience. So it's it's, it's effectively an act against what we believe to be right. Um, And what's, what's difficult here is that as I said, it's an act. We're immediately thinking, well, then there's there's thought acts. There are acts of omission, things we have not done. The fix of acts of commission, they're things that we have done. So guilt suddenly moves from this very clear statement of an act against our core conscience or core value into, oh my goodness, is it even an act? Is it could it be something I haven't done? Could it be something I have done? Is it an act against God? Is it an act against myself? Is it? A, is, is anyone else being hurt? Suddenly you end up with this huge tapestry. And that's where the sort of unpicking needs to happen. Because uh, 
there are so many variables where guilt is concerned. You know, we, we, we have the variable of our own sensitivity of conscience. We have the variable of our own sociological framework, our upbringing and our values. So some people have a, you know, have very rigid background and high moral standards set at home, which lead them to believe that everything that they do is wrong, whether it's right or wrong. We've got the faith issue, like everything biblically. We've got the issue of the conscience seared and renewed spiritually. What does that look like? Um, the, a common cl- Christian belief that if you feel guilty, you are guilty. So it might sort of claim, fess up and commit, uh, sort of confess everything because you've probably got it wrong. So there's all sorts of different dynamics here. It's difficult to pin guilt down in a simple sentence or phrase that really sticks. But but I like to drive it from feelings first and say, look, the feeling of guilt is what we're really trying to address here to understand guilt. And sometimes the feeling of guilt is disassociated from the reality of whether we're guilty or not guilty. Mm. But when we start with the feeling, we've got something concrete to work with. So I feel guilty relative to this concept or this experience. How can I now work out whether that guilt is going to produce fruit or whether it's actually going to kill the tree? So that's, that's, the, that's the starting point for me. So, Do you feel guilty and why? So is there such a thing as positive guilt then? Absolutely. I, I think guilt is in many ways a gift. I mean, this is, again, one of the, one of the travesties of our world is that emotions have been cut down into a sort of a core group of acceptable emotions. Um, but actually, emotions aren't good or bad. They just are. They help us to dilect our, emotion, our experience. Whenever we experience anything in life, we have an associated emotion. Some of them aren't very distinct, but we, we, we are feelings people. And guilt is a core feeling which helps us. It doesn't hinder us in most instances. Guilt um, is very powerful in the way it adapts our behavior. A bit like fire or feelings of pain, you know, if you burn your hand, mm-hmm. On the oven, you withdraw your hand straight away so you don't continue to get burnt. What one of the gifts of guilt is, if we start journeying into behavior which is maladaptive, that is unhelpful behavior or is oppositional to community or damaging to self or other, the feeling of guilt is a is a is a flame feeling. We burn ourselves emotionally and we should pull back, acknowledge that what we've done is wrong and then address that behavior. If we have no guilt, it's a form of emotional leprosy. And actually, those people often end up in prison. Um, We call them sociopaths. Uh, They don't feel any remorse. In fact, they actually take pleasure in the suffering and pain of others, and they're very dangerous. Whereas people um, who experience guilt and remorse are people who can retain healthy life in community at large, and can retain good relationships. So guilt shouldn't be dismissed as some sort of a, a sort of religious burden that we have to carry, but actually is a really helpful tool in retaining healthy relationships and healthy connection to other people's suffering and our own. Some people can, though, become locked in a cycle of guilt, can't they? Where they they feel guilty, they are drawn into this. And, and as I, I've heard people talk in terms of, well, things like false guilt as well as true guilt. What is the difference between 
true guilt and false guilt? So if we start from a position by saying that, in essence, guilt is helpful in that it's a reaction to our encounter with something within us. We, we, we know we've done wrong. We've, we've transgressed our moral connection and category. So if we, if we agree that that's a good starting point, then, then that reaction, the fire, if you like, burning ourselves against whatever the circumstances were, that reaction leads us to a change of behavior. But if we feel the feeling of fire, of the kind of burn, but actually there is no circumstance, then that isn't adaptive. It's not helping us change our behavior at all. It, it's just a feeling. And you know, true guilt responds is a reaction to true circumstantial experience. So we, 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 we've, we have transgressed what we believe to be right. We feel guilty and we adapt our behavior. False guilt is simply feeling the feeling but actually not having transgressed those boundaries and actually not being able to make an adaptive change for improvement of, of, of life and well-being. Many people get st stuck in this echo chamber of false guilt where they perpetually feel guilty, but there aren't actually any acts or events that they need to keep reconsidering. And historically, uh, there was a word for this, which was called scrupulosity, and um, the Methodists were very aware of this. And uh, I think that the Wesley brothers talked about scrupulosity. Um, Whitfield talked about scrupulosity. Uh, and and uh, there, there was a sort of sense that there were people who had an overzealous conscience, which in itself became an emotional, spiritual burden. Um, and I think that issue is very alive in the church today mm. and yet isn't addressed because we have that we use this one term of guilt for everything we use guilt for both the genuine feeling of remorse relative to having transgressed those moral boundaries or those uh, emotional boundaries and then we use the same word for um, an overactive conscience which becomes an emotional problem and how much of that is tied into thinking in terms of broader society is tied into so many people's feelings of failure and falling short in what they can achieve what of their what their value is what their importance is whether they have measured up to the the sort of standards that social media or whatever put out there how much of that that sort of false guilt burden comes out of the well, I must, I must feel guilty because basically I'm rubbish anyway. Well, I certainly think that low self-esteem is synonymous with, uh, with, these, with, with false guilt or feelings of low worth. And it, it tends to be a bit of a vicious circle. You know, if you feel low about yourself, um, you're more likely to identify ways in which you've deemed yourself to have failed. You're more likely to be mindful of ways in which you believe you've transgressed uh, the moral code you're more likely to be more sensitive to feelings of guilt and maybe more likely to then fall into ruminating or overthinking those things there's a very interesting study by a guy called taya a cohen at uh, carnegie mellon university uh, in pennsylvania really looking at trying to um, identify high functioning sociopaths who are likely to give away if you like national secrets um, so this is your sort of Sherlock Holmesy kind of character who's very intelligent, 
on one level socially accordant, but just doesn't really have any empathy. Um, now, it turns out they aren't great. They're, they're potentially functionally brilliant, but they're not great people to employ because they don't have any sense of loyalty towards mm. your organization. What Taye Cohen's study found was, yes, there are various people who have sociopathy, various people who have low empathy, and some people delight in the pain of others. It's all quite disturbing. But what he found at the other end of the scale was a group of people who, who had high guilt and shame proneness. So the study inadvertently revealed that 20% of the population at large overly feel guilt and shame as a, as a natural byproduct of their personality. So there is, a, there is a personality type. You know, a fifth of the population at large naturally feel more guilty than, than, than everyone else. Um, so it's not, it's not just about how we're socialized in terms of um, you know, our experience historically. It's not just about whether we have low self-esteem or not. It's actually a personality trait to feel guilt, which adds a complexity to this whole thing. Because if you're one of those uh, 20% of people who feel high levels of guilt and shame, when you feel guilt, how much attention should you give it? Mm. Could it just be a byproduct of the fact that you're, that you're being you? Right, exactly. Mm. And so in the same way that we might say to someone who is feeling low about life, are you feeling low about an event or are you, are you depressed? We might say with guilt, are you feeling guilty about an event or are you feeling just scrupulous? Uh, so is the feeling really associated with something concrete that we can address or is it an ethereal experience, an emotion, if you like, which is over-provoked or produced? And I think those kind of questions are fundamental because if we can begin that conversation, we can lead people to greater health and emotional awareness. And you can see then how guilt could become an unmanageable thing within the life of a Christian, particularly if they were, were inclined towards those feelings of guilt. Because on one level, you would think, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. Jesus died for me. He rose again by his sacrifice. I've been forgiven. He has lifted the burden of guilt off my shoulders. I can move forward. A, a new person I may need to make sort of restitution to the world around me because of my actions, but the, the burden of condemnation has been lifted off my shoulders. I can move forward. An awful lot of us within church life embrace that reality. But there are some people for whom the, the thought, even the thought of Jesus' sacrifice, it actually intensifies their struggle with guilt, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, John Bunyan's a great example. You know, he, he, he wrote a, a terrible book while he was in prison before he wrote Pilgrim's Progress about all his you know, desperate thoughts of guilt and self-recrimination. And then he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which has been, of course, a worldwide bestseller for generations. And Pilgrim's Progress is actually John Bunyan's description of his own mind journey. Uh, it's the slough of despond, the arrows of accusation. And, you know, these, are all, these are all descriptions of how he ex encountered his own mind. And he experienced tortuous thoughts of kind of guilt and uh, unworthiness and, 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 and recrimination associated with an overactive conscience. And today we would say, that John Bunyan probably struggled with obsessive compulsive disorder of a type um, and, you know, had, had all the hallmarks of someone who struggled with scrupulosity. 
Um, and, and there have been many others. I mean, remember that, that guilt is also a, 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 an aspect of depression, that feelings of guilt are part of the pathology of mental health. Um, and if you're depressed, you will feel guilt. Um, obsessive compulsive disorder is made up of two components, um, doubt and guilt. So guilt is an intrinsic part of mental health, as well as being propagated by um, real events. The Christian faith, ironically, is our only real liberator from true guilt. Mm. The fact that Jesus went to the cross for our sake and forgives us and enables us to forgive ourselves and others is the greatest gift to the world. But as you've also identified, being awakened to our brokenness and our guilt, our true guilt, we are in danger of becoming so over-focused on our unworthiness that every little thing becomes uh, a means by which we might feel guilty. And some theology has propagated this. I mean, Augustine's theology of total depravity is a great example. And actually, I think many people, particularly people now, sort of people who were sort of very active in the church in the 60s and 70s, where in the evangelical movement, that was the kind of preeminent theology, yes. yeah. have suffered a consequence of that. And, you know, I've, I've spent time with old, older Christians who, who've, been, you know, who've disclosed to me a feeling and sort of spent a life basically feeling guilty about themselves. And actually trying to reconcile that to what Jesus has said is very hard. I mean, he said, I've come to give you life and life in all its fullness in John 10, 10. It's hard to recognize how life in its fullness is actually spending 40 years feeling terrible about yourself and feeling like you're a worm and totally depraved. It, 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 it's, a, it's an anathema to the gospel. And is there a sense that, because this sort of distinction between true guilt and false guilt is, is very important because of the way in which people can reconcile true guilt. They can move forward. But it is the insidious way that false guilt, this, this pervading guilt, kind of hangs over our heads. It's almost as though the, the definition for it could be, actually, does Jesus, is Jesus able to lift this off your shoulders? And if not, then is it a valid guilt? Well, absolutely. You know, we're, we're so often applying the, the right medicine to the wrong problem or the wrong medicine to the right problem. And uh, really moving into freedom as a Christian is applying the cross to true guilt, because when we do that, we find true freedom. But then we have to be very, very sensitive to the fact that whilst we are ontologically free, as in our true outworking is a free and holy identity. When God sees us, he doesn't see our sin, he sees Christ. So we're hidden in Christ. Our sin is assaged, and we are acceptable to God, no longer slaves, uh, but actually sons and daughters of God. So that's our true identity. We also are at risk of this insidious feeling of not being good enough because our sins uh, somehow discount us, which is, of course, uh, oppositional to the true gospel, which is that you know, we are all, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. And, and, and it doesn't matter whether we're short of the glory of God by one meter or by 1,000 mm. miles, we're all short of the glory of God. So it doesn't matter whether you're, you've come out of jail for all sorts of heinous crimes or you, you stole a penny sweet from the corner shop. Both sinners are equally saved in Christ. Of course, the world doesn't believe that, which doesn't necessarily help the guilty Christian because Christians tend to grade their sin and then the people who believe that they're the worst often believe that they should exclude themselves the most. So that's a challenge. 
The sensitive of conscience obviously struggle. Those with scrupulosity issues, high sensitivity towards guilt and shame, they struggle. But also we struggle because having received the forgiveness of God, we often question that forgiveness. And we ask God to fish the sin that we've confessed out of the deeper sea. We ask God to remind himself of that sin that he's long since forgotten. And then hear our confession and then throw it back into the deeper sea and forget it again until we feel it's important to remind him of it. So many Christians receive true forgiveness and are saved of their guilt by asking God's forgiveness. But then they go through this obsessive process of trying to wake God up to their sin again so they can still, still feel the same first relief of confession. So in the book, Rob and I trying to encourage people to think about false guilt, not just as guilt disassociated from real events, but also to reawaken or reconfess a sin that's already been dealt with. And this is a key tenant for Christians because just because something is true doesn't mean it's low, it is, is, is eternally real. So yes, you've sinned in the past, but if you receive the forgiveness of God, you're now forgiven. And that is a decision as well as a feeling. Mm. You can't spend your whole life perpetually confessing that same sin. And when we wrote the guilt book, we found that people tended to ask God for forgiveness for the same thing 10,000 times. And actually, God had forgiven it and forgotten it a long time ago. The trouble was that they couldn't. I think somebody once said to me, the, the difficulty we have is not that God forgives us. It is that we struggle to forgive ourselves. And so that voice at the back of our head reminds us of the terrible thing we've done and somehow undermines our efforts to make progress in building a better life. That's certainly true. But the anchor here, as I said, when I was trying to define guilt, is feelings. Mm. And feelings are, really, feelings are such a gift, but feelings can also confuse us. When we feel initial guilt to a true sin that needs to be truly addressed, that, that feeling is a gift of identification. But then we go to God and we receive forgiveness and sanctification. But when we feel that feeling again, it's very confusing to then go, oh, why, why am I feeling this again? Unless it's true. So we then, we over-prioritize our feelings and say, well, because I feel the same feeling again, it now must be true that I'm guilty. I need to wake God up again to confession. When actually, some feelings respond to real events and some feelings don't. Some feelings are just an echo of what we've experienced in the past and we shouldn't give too much attention to them. I mean, ultimately, managing false guilt is about deciding what's true and what isn't true. And I try and help people to identify, you know, that Christ is the true remedy to their true sin. But actually, the devil, as the accuser, wants to wake them up to historic and forgiven sin and say, has God really forgiven you? And, and that process, that sense of having not been forgiven, keeps many Christians away from mission and service and participation in the body of Christ because they're so busy reconfessing things that God's already dealt with. Yeah. Um, and it's not dissimilar to, you know, to Genesis 3 when the devil's saying, you know, did God really say that, you know, if you ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, da-da-da. You know, the devil wants to quickly remind Christians, oh, well, has God really forgiven you for X? And actually, maybe you need to confess it again. And so people end up in a compulsive cycle of confession where they basically wake up and spend the whole day apologizing for a sin that they committed 20 years ago because their feelings are, are driving the, the narrative. When I want to say, 
listen to your feelings, but then appraise your feelings and ask yourself, is this feeling associated with something that truly is happening and is new, or is it associated to an echo of something that's already been dealt with? And test it in the light of what God says, what the Bible says, and and acknowledge the fact that there is a significant difference between feeling guilty and being guilty. You're listening to UCB Life Issues. I'm Paul Hammond talking this week to Will Vanderhart as we talk about grappling with guilt. And you used the word confession quite a few times there and I made the point earlier that the way to address the, those the unresolved issues that lead to guilt is actually about confession. And confession, of course, in some parts of the church has played a big part in trying to address people's dealing with their sin. But at the same time, guilt seems to be something that we treat quite dismissively, especially within the evangelical church. We don't really seem to focus on it that much. So how does confession work? And why are we not more attentive to it in the church today? I think there's a, a great shame in the light in the history of the church that that actually Protestantism, Protestantism split from Catholicism, left confession strongly with the Catholic Church, and failed to really migrate into the Anglican Church at large. Although the more Catholic tradition of the Anglican Church continued to use confession, certainly the the uh, post-Reformation response to um, to confession was that somehow that was a historic vestige of um, the misuse of indulgences. Uh, so uh, in a period of time, um, clergy were sort of charging uh, for a, a certification almost to say that you were forgiven and going to heaven. And so the Reformation led to a, the removal, if you like, of that principle, which was obviously ungodly. Uh, but the counter response was almost like we don't need confession. And I think there's, there's a, a, a terrible miss there because confession is a gift to the church and Paul calls us to confess our sins to one another um, and and that process of articulating and identifying those things which are wrong in our lives is actually another gift for two reasons number one if something is really amiss in our lives and we're feeling guilty and we confess our sin we receive the benefit of instruction and counsel about how we might move away from that behavior. And so we, we receive the benefit of sharing it and of being instructed about how to move past it, as well as receiving, if you like, the freedom of having been unburdened and the affirmation of the forgiveness that God offers. But secondarily, and in this context, maybe more importantly, when we confess and our brother or sister in Christ says, wow, that's really interesting, that issue is really not an issue, or, wow, I think you've raised this before, and I wonder if this is an obsessional sort of confession, we can appraise ourselves again and recognize that the guilt that we believe we're carrying isn't guilt at all, it's something else. So confession affords us two opportunities. Number one, that we might find genuine freedom and correction. But number two, that we might need that, know that we don't need uh, freedom and correction because this is an, a non-guilt issue. This is effectively false guilt. The danger, as we said earlier on, is if we spend our lifetime within our own counsel, we never get mm. that freedom. We never get to appraise whether or not our guilt is real because we've kept it to ourselves. 
And typically, we'll always assume against ourselves and say, well, if I feel guilty, I am guilty. Simba didn't find true balance around his mistakes until he discovered he was blaming himself for stuff that was outside his control. Sure. And unfortunately, we haven't got a sort of Mustafa in the sky to tell us that actually it's not our fault. Um, although, although God, you know, he, he's generous in revelation. And I think, you know, there's something really life-giving here. The, the trouble is that because we're so self-referencing, our listeners on this call will say, oh, that's probably true for some people. But for me, yes. uh, I'm, I'm really bad. And, and, you know, we discussed earlier, you know, is sh- shame, shame and guilt are not the same thing at all. But shame would say, if you tell anyone, you will be rejected by whichever community you want to be part of. So, you know, guilt is a response to act. Shame is a response to the self. Guilt is feeling badly about what I've done, but shame is feeling badly about who I am. And the trouble about guilt and shame is they're completely different emotions, but they co-relate. So when I feel guilty about what I've done, I begin to feel shame about who I am. And the trouble with shame is shame wants, wants to lead me to hide. Shame drives me to hide. And so if I feel guilty about what I've done, the last thing I actually feel like I want to do is then confess my sin to someone else because then I'll feel terrible about, about, terrible about who I am. And so when we break through that barrier and we confess our sin and we expose our guilt to the light, and we aren't rejected, both our, our sense of guilt and our shame, a sense of shame are both upended, which is, again, a reason why confession is so helpful. But I, I've often wondered whether the word itself, confession, isn't, you know, is actually unhelpful as a, you know, as a term because it provokes so, so many different negative reactions in people, particularly Christians. You know, if I say you should start confession, immediately people think about religious practice uh, associated with the denomination that they're not necessarily part of. Um, other people will think that uh, a sort of a traditional um, confession, if you like, is what I'm really talking about when I'm talking about something that's a lot more intimate than that. This is really about having an honest chat with a friend who you yes. really trust and who's really confidential to say, hey, I've been feeling bad because of X. Can you just give me your opinion? Do I need to do something? And they should listen and go, on reflection, either yes, I think you do, or no, I don't think that is an issue. It is what some would describe as a relationship of accountability, isn't it? Absolutely. But again, the danger about accountability language, it seems very punitive. Yes, um, yes. You know, and, and, and men particularly always think about this as being a porn-related issue. Oh, I know, my accountability partner. So it's got, it's got sort of siloed into quite a small mm. quadrant mm. of behaviours when actually guilt is so pervasive in life and it's so far beyond any one behavior or other. So I think what we're saying is actually confession looks like asking for reflection with an accountable friend uh, on a circumstance with which you have had an emotional reaction. And that would come, that would come across something like this. <clears throat> Paul, um, I've been feeling really bad the last couple of days because um, you know, I came home late from work and I didn't tell my family and I was really snappy with my wife. And, you know, I feel like I've, I've been, you know, I was quite rude and there's a bit of an atmosphere at home and I've just sort of buried it. You know, what do you think I should do? Now, 
I, I, I'm saying to you, I'm feeling guilty. I'm describing a bit of the behavior associated with what happened. And what I'm expecting from you is to say, okay, well, what do you feel about the event? I'll say, well, I feel bad. I feel guilt. I feel you know, ashamed of my behavior. And then you might say, well, have you apologized to your wife? I'll say, oh, no, I haven't. Well, okay, well, I suggest that's the first thing you do is say yeah. sorry. Mm. And then we go from there. And actually, have you said sorry to the Lord? And then what are you going to do next time? And, you know, and we work through it that way around. But if I, if I said to you, oh, the other day I came home and I just felt really guilty, you'll say, well, what did you feel guilty about? And I say, oh, I just don't know. Then we're working around a different sort of idea. Yeah, yeah. We're sort of starting to say, okay, what's going on here? So that's the kind of accountability I'm talking about, not a sort of formalized um process you know not a formalized religious or particularly structured kind of piece of work in the guild book one of the things that you do is move towards an image of what freedom around guilt is actually like and we've touched on some of those things already today but what was interesting for me is that you don't appear to be and feel free to correct me if i'm wrong but you don't appear to be saying that we can expect to be free from guilty feelings. Because actually, guilty feelings are part of the makeup of what we have in God, but they need to be kept in balance. Is that right? Uh, I think that's right. I mean, I, so this, is a, this is a difficult one because, again, it's partly temperamentally driven. I mean, some people literally don't feel that much guilt. Um, and that must be really nice for them. <laughs> but actually, it also can be unhelpful for them if they don't feel the need for corrective behaviours. But for, for, for a significant number of people, I'd say, look, we've got to get away from this idea that we've got to escape feelings which make us feel uncomfortable. Recognise that actually, guilt is a core part of what it is to be human, because to be human is to be in community, as I've said. So if we feel guilty in community we're always adapting our behaviours to really enmesh ourselves within the context of that community. And the community of the church has really high standards. I mean, for, as a Christian, trying to be holy as God is holy is a pretty hard job. Jesus is a pretty high benchmark in terms of behaviour. So on, level, on one level, of course, we're going to feel guilt. You know, it, it is part of our human condition. But the issue here is, is, is not, are we going to feel guilt or not? It's, are we going to languish in that guilt? And are we going to allow the enemy to use those guilty feelings to disable us from the work that God has called us to participate in? See, it seems to me the greatest travesty of the church today is the inaction of its membership, largely because of this sense of unworthiness that's so pervasive in the church at large. So if you take children's ministry, for example, Every church leader I talk to these days are struggling to raise children's team. And let me tell you that of the children's team, the hardest people to raise are young men to participate in the children's ministry of the church. Now, the reality is there are lots of important steps that we've needed to take as a church around awareness and around safeguarding and around safe culture. But so many men feel so badly about themselves that they're so unworthy, that they're so broken, that they're, they're sexually struggling in so many different ways. They don't want to participate in anything anymore. They just want to stay in their pews, least of all participate in, 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 a, in a ministry like that. Um, because they think, well, I'm not good enough because, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a failure, I'm a, I, I'm a broken or I'm sinful. 
And the church is, is leaking its volunteer base because the assumption is that everyone who helps us must be perfect and not feel any feelings of guilt or shame. It, firstly, it doesn't make a safe person. And secondly, a lot of the guilt that people feel is not even true. Yeah. And so yeah. what we're seeing is a church where the volunteer base is diminishing and there's a professionalization of ministry where clergy and associated leaderships, elderships, are looked upon as people who've got their life absolutely straight and haven't done anything wrong. Therefore, they're willing participants in the life of the church. When all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are invited, and all are called to participate. And I, I think when Rob and I wrote the guilt book, we were horrified about the extent of the guilt and the a disconnection from people from participation because they literally said, I just don't feel good enough to contribute. It's it's enough for me just to know that I'm saved. I'm like, hold on a minute. You're only 25 years old. You're going to spend the rest of your life in the church filling a pew because you feel like you're excluded from participation because only really holy people can serve the Lord. Well, we're made holy by God through Christ. We aren't holy of our own works so no one could boast. Um, and yet, this is where we're at. We've got to deal with false guilt. Yeah. And it is that false guilt that hangs over our head and draws us down and discourages us and warps and shapes inaccurately our perspective of who we are in God and warps and shapes society's perspective about what it can or can't do. And therein lies the hope and the message and the truth of the gospel to not just forgive our sin, but also to free us from the burden of guilt that we might live an accurate life before God. The Guilt Book is published by IVP. It's available online and in good bookshops, written by Rob Waller and my guest today, Will van der Hart. Will, great to speak to you about this. Thank you for joining us and just sharing your perspective about how we grapple with guilt. I'm Paul Hammond. You've been listening to UCB Life Issues. Thank you as well to my producer this week, Rachel. And if you're able, why not join us next week for another one? Ta-da! <laughs>